Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. Please help us as we look at these, uh, these long chapters now to understand the point that is being made, to receive the comfort and the challenge that you offer to us through them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the sad fact is Christians often fall into sin. Uh, we, like everybody else, we mess up. Uh, someone tempts a Christian with money or, or with sex or some other temptation. The Christian goes for it and, and down they fall. Um, Christians including Christians in the public eye, fall into sin. And when it happens, non-Christians love it. It's true, isn't it? Non-Christians love it when Christians fall into sin. I bet you've had it happen to you. You drop a swear word or you get caught using the work photocopier for personal reasons and some non-Christian laughs at you. Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? Why are you doing that? I had it happen to me just the other day. It was uh, uh, early in the evening on my, my day off and uh, someone knocked on the door while I was trying to feed four ratty children their dinner. I was not feeling in a happy mood at all and someone reeking of alcohol and drugs and everything came to the front door demanding my money. I didn't have any money. I said to him that uh, I wasn't going to give him any money. He said, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? I said, yeah, I am actually. Aren't you, well, what did you become a minister for in the first place? So, well, not to give money to every con artist who comes to the front door. But um, he said, well, I've got more Christianity in my little finger than you've got in your whole body. <clears throat> anyway, on it went. Uh, you see it in the media. The media loves it when Christians mess up, uh, whether it be uh, poor Ted Haggard recently and his sins. Uh, the media love talking about the greed of the prosperity gospel movement. The, the media love scandals of sexual abuse by priests or ministers. They love to laugh about the immoralities of the televangelists. I mean, you will never pick up a newspaper and read a lead article about some church that's faithfully teaching the Bible, will you? Basically, for a church to make the news, there's got to be scandal. Some leader has to fall. Christians fall... And the world loves it. And that's, that's the same kind of thing that happened with God's Old Testament people in the time of Ezekiel. Now, so far in this book of Ezekiel, we've been focusing on Israel's fall. The year, it's about, uh, it's about 587 BC. Ten years earlier, Israel were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, many of them taken into exile. And... And despite the fact that they were hoping and praying for, for the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, it hasn't happened. And as we've gone now to about 587 BC, we've seen in chapter 24 that uh, the process of God's judgment is beginning. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has laid siege to Jerusalem. It is about to fall. Ezekiel has laid out Israel's sin. He's laid out God's judgment. Israel is, is, is falling. And now in this next section, we move forward in time a year or so to the time just after the fall of Jerusalem, it's about 586 BC, and we focus on the nations that surround Israel. Now, we focus on Israel's neighbours, and we see how they respond to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. And, uh, and, and like people today do with Christians, Christians who fall, Israel's neighbours love it. They laugh, they cheer... But the thing is, God is not happy with this response. Now, there are seven nations mentioned in these chapters, and the first six work in a clockwise circle, a circle clockwise around Israel. I've given you my uh, beautifully drawn map here, so you can see at least vaguely what we're doing here. Um, you can see Judah boxed in the middle. We start with the country of Ammon. 
there in the east to the right. And then we go down to Moab, to Edom, and then around there to Philistia. Those are all countries, Ammon, Moab, uh, Edom, Philistia. And then we head up north to two cities of Tyre and Sidon. And then we kind of change tack and we head right away from Israel's neighbours down to Egypt over in the, uh, the southwest there. Okay, well, let's look at these nations one by one. Uh, the first nation is Ammon. When Jerusalem fell, Ammon cheered that they clapped their hands and stamped their feet and celebrated when the Jews were destroyed. Uh, but God is not impressed. God loves his people and he gets very angry when pagans rejoice over their fall. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 25 and verse 1. Ezekiel 25 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you said aha, or better, hooray, because you said hooray over my sanctuary when it was desecrated and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah when they went into exile, therefore I'm going to give you to the people of the east as a possession to Babylon. They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They'll eat your fruit and drink your milk. I'll turn Rabbi into a pasture for camels and Ammon into a resting place for sheep. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, Rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I'll stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I'll cut you off from the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I'll destroy you and you will know that I'm the Lord. There's Ammon. Next we head down to Moab. Much the same story. When Israel fell, they said, Ha ha! Israel and her God are just the same as all the other nations and all the other gods. Again, God isn't happy. Israel and their God are not like everyone else. And so Moab will face his anger as well. Chapter 25 and verse 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because Moab and Seir said, Look, the house of Judah has become like all the other nations. Therefore I'll expose the flank of Moab, beginning at its frontier towns, Beth Jeshemoth, Baal and Kiriathaim, the glory of that land. I'll give Moab along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations, and I'll inflict punishment on Moab. Then they'll know that I'm the Lord. Next nation is Edom. Uh, they took the opp- opportunity of Jerusalem's fall to take revenge against the Jews, and so God is going to judge them. Verse 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because Edom took revenge on the house of Judah and became very guilty by doing so, therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'll stretch out my hand against Edom, and kill its men and their animals. I'll lay it waste, and from Taman to Dadan they will fall by the sword. Uh, similarly with Philistia, the Philistines, they also used the opportunity to take vengeance on the Jews, uh, so they're going to go down as well, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah, therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines. I'll cut off the Kerithites and destroy those remaining along the coast. I'll carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they'll know that I'm the Lord when I take vengeance on them. And then in chapters 26, we come to a much longer uh, section. But uh, it, again, it's, it's a very similar thing. This time we're dealing with uh, the city of Tyre. And what Tyre did, uh, when they saw Jerusalem destroyed, they looked at it as an opportunity trading opportunity 
Uh, Tyre was a, a great trade. It was an island, very much like uh, Hong Kong, a centre of uh, world trade. And they said, well, great, now Jerusalem is gone. We can take over her business and her trade. Uh, but again, God has other ideas. Chapter 26 and verse 1. Chapter 26, verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Hooray! The gate to the nations is broken and its doors are swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, O Tyre. Now I'll bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They'll destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I'll scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea, she'll become a place to spread fishing nets. For I've spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She'll become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. And then we get more of the same for the next uh, couple of chapters all about this, uh, this place called Tyre. Uh, God says that he's going to use King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Tyre. He also talks about the, the reaction of all her trading partners. They'll be appalled. Uh, chapter 27, God compares Tyre to a large and powerful ship. Uh, this week, uh, my son Joel had a project to, um, to build a ship and it had to float for 10 seconds. I spent three hours building a ship with him and it uh, sank straight to the bottom <laughs> of the bath. But we've now stuck some bottles under it so it'll hold, hold up. It looks pretty terrible, but uh, anyway, poor thing. It's the problem when you've got a dad like me. Um, well, this is not what Tyre is like. Tyre is like an ancient Titanic, a seemingly invincible picture of wealth and opulence and power. Uh, but God says, not like Jeff Reed's ship, but like Jeff Reed's ship, God says the ship is going down. Uh, chapter 28, God focuses on the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre reckons that he's a god. Uh, but God says, uh, you're going to die like a man. And then uh, in, in a chapter that, um, that uh, people often mistakenly think is talking about Satan instead of the king of Tyre, it's actually talking about the king of Tyre, what God does is he compares the king of Tyre to Adam in the Garden of Eden. So what's happened is, like Adam, the king of Tyre is usurping God's place, trying to claim to be God. And so, like Adam, God says the king of Tyre will be thrown out of his garden and die. Now that's Tyre. And then in chapter 28 and verse 20, we come to the last of Israel's neighbours. Chapter 28, verse 20 is about the city of Sidon, and the message is the same for them as for all of Israel's other troublesome neighbours. They will face the judgment of God. You can look, for example, at verse 23, 28, 23. I will send a plague upon her and make blood flow in her streets. The slain will fall within her with the sword against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so God summarises the situation. Uh, all of Israel's troublesome neighbours will be destroyed uh, so that in the future when God, when God restores his people and brings them back to the land, they will have peace and security. Verse 24. 28, 24. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbours who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they'll know that I'm the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they've been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbours who maligned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. All right, you get the point. Uh, Israel's pagan uh, neighbours all around her they loved it when Israel fell. 
They laughed, they cheered, they clapped their hands and stomped their feet. But that makes God very angry. God loves his people. And so those nations that malign them will face his judgment. And you know, just as, just as a bit of a historical side point, this actually happened. Just as Ezekiel said, has anybody here ever met an Ammonite? Has anybody here ever met a Moabite? What about an Edomite? Uh, a Philistine? I, I don't mean your husband who hates opera and burps at the table. <laughs> I mean a person from Philistia. What about a Phoenician from Tyre or Sidon? Anybody met any of those? All right, well, has anybody met any Jews around the place? Anybody met a Jew? Why haven't we met people from all those six nations? Why have we met a Jew? Well, because God kept his word. Those six nations were destroyed. He, he did restore his people. It's interesting, don't you think? Because right through these chapters of Ezekiel, God is saying, this is what I will do in world history, and then they will know that I am the Lord. This is what God did in world history, and now we can know that he is the Lord. We can know from world history, when we see it predicted by the prophets, that God is God, and he's in control. Right, well, Israel's neighbours laughed at her fall. And as we said at the beginning, that's true of us as God's New Testament people as well. I think we can compare ourselves with Israel at this point. You see, if you and I rely on Jesus, we become God's people. Now it's whether we are a Jew or a Gentile. But we, as people who trust in Jesus, God's true person, we receive all the benefits that Israel had. We are loved by God. We are special to God. The thing is, you will also find, as a Christian, as God's New Testament person, that people react to you like they did to Israel. People will love it when you fall. Uh, But you know what? What was true of Israel in Ezekiel's day is true today of Christians. God loves his people. And when pagans laugh at our fall, he hates it. Those who trouble God's people will face the consequences. God still gets angry at pagans who laugh at the fall of his people. Uh, on your outline there, I've put uh, a couple of verses from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just ha- have a look at what they say there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, I don't think that this is anything for us to gloat about. I think we can take comfort from the knowledge that we look forward to a future without trouble, a future of safety and of peace. I think we can take comfort from the fact that God is on our side and loves us. But we shouldn't be gloating about this, I don't think. Jesus is clear that we should, that we should love our enemies. We should pray for those who persecute us. So what should we do? How should we react to those people who laugh when Christians fall? How should we react to those people who laugh when you or I fall into sin? How should we react? We know from Ezekiel that people like that will face God's judgment. So, so what are we going to do? 
Well, first, uh, we need to work very hard to give them no reason to laugh at us in the first place. We don't want to be encouraging people to mock us and to face God's judgment. So, for example, in Titus chapter 2, where Paul is writing to the church about being godly, he gives reasons like this. He says, be godly so that no one will malign the word of God. He says, be godly so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. He says, be godly so that in every way we'll make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. See what he's saying there? The fact that we have a world watching, a world uh, longing to see us fall, or to make us try harder to resist temptation, to serve our Saviour and to commend him to the people around us. Don't give them a reason to laugh. But then second, if we do fall, we mustn't give up. We uh, We mustn't join with the mockers. If we sin and get laughed at, we mustn't give up. We need to pick ourselves up and keep on going as Christians. We need to ask God for forgiveness. We need to press on. There is the, the, the laughter of the mockers will not last. The, the, the laughter of the media will not last. There is no future in mocking, whether you're Mike Carlton in the newspaper or whether you're your workmate at work. There is no future in mocking God's people. We don't want to join them. We want to press on with Christ. Third... Third, we ought to have an answer for people. I've been thinking about this during the week. I think part of the reason why non-Christians laugh when Christians fall, it's because they've got a wrong understanding of what a Christian is. They think a Christian is a good person. They think when we say that we are Christians, we're saying that we are good people, that we're better than they are. That's why they laugh when we fall, because it shows our hypocrisy. We say we're better than them, they think, but really we are not. I think uh, we ought to try to address that. So say, for example, I sin in some way. Someone says, ha-ha, I thought you were a Christian, you shouldn't have done that. I think I ought to say something like this. Look, I'm really sorry that I did it. It was wrong, I'm sorry that I've set a bad example for you. I'm sorry if I've made you think badly of Christians. But really, the whole reason I am a Christian is because I'm a sinful person. I need to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus died and rose again, so I can be forgiven. See how we can turn it? People who mock us, they're going to face God's judgment. And so for their sake, I think we ought to try to have an answer. We ought to try to find some way to point them to the Lord Jesus. Don't get all defensive. Don't don't try to justify yourself. Just say sorry and then help them to find Jesus because he's the only one who can save them. And then finally, we ought to pray for those people who laugh at us. Their future looks terribly bleak. We've seen that here in Ezekiel. They have added now to all their other sin the sin of mocking God's fallen people. And their only hope is Jesus. We ought to pray. Okay, well that's the the first six nations, the nations that surround uh, Judah and Israel. The last nation that Ezekiel deals with, um, a little bit different from all the rest. Egypt was not a direct neighbour of Israel and Egypt wasn't guilty of mocking Israel. Rather, Egypt was the nation that tempted Israel into sin. Now for this prophecy we have to actually step back in time about a year from 586 to about 587 BC again Jerusalem has not yet fallen, but she is in trouble. 
And part of the reason she's in trouble is because of Egypt. Now, the pharaoh of Egypt had convinced King Zedekiah of, Je- of Jerusalem to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to, to break the oath that he'd made, the treaty that he'd made before God, and rebel. He said, go on, Zedekiah, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and, uh, and I'll be right here behind you. You can rely on me. I'll help you. Now, God said to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, don't do it. Don't rely on Egypt. Rely on me. But, of course, Egypt was a lot more tangible than God, and so King Zedekiah ignored God and rebelled. The problem was Egypt wasn't much use. God says they were like a staff of reed. I reckon that's a beautiful image. It makes me think of... uh, um, uh, particularly a couple of years ago in the Tuesday Club, where every single person in the Tuesday Club had a stick that they were walking on. And they sort of walk in leaning on their sticks. Well, imagine you try to lean on a walking stick, but it turns out to be like a skinny reed, a blade of grass. You, uh, you, you lean, it breaks, you give yourself some splinters in your hand, and you do your back. That's the image. Now, that's what Egypt were like for Israel. Israel tried to lean on them, but they turned out to be a staff of reed. They proved to be no help at all. Again, God says he's not happy. He's not happy that Egypt tempted Israel away from him. He's not happy that his people relied on Egypt instead of him. He's not happy that Egypt failed his people. And so, like all the other nations around, Egypt is going to face his judgment. They'll be defeated. And, uh, and even though they will be restored, God says they will never be a superpower again. Israel will never be tempted to rely on them instead of God again. Let's pick it up, chapter 29. And halfway through verse 6. Chapter 29 and halfway through verse 6. God says to Egypt, You have been a staff of reed for the house of Israel. When they grasped you with their hands, you splintered and tore open their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'll bring a sword against you and kill your men and their animals. Egypt will become a desolate wasteland. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. Jump down to verse 13. Verse 13. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. I'll bring them back from captivity and return them to Upper Egypt, the land of their ancestry. There they'll be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above the other nations. I'll make it so weak that it will never again rule over the nations. Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel, but will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help. Then they will know that I'm the sovereign Lord. Now, the last couple of chapters, chapters 30 to 32, is the same stuff. God is talking to Egypt and to Pharaoh, uh, talking about how he will judge them, using all kinds of illustrations, beaut illustrations again. He, he says, um, you reckon you're like a high, tall tree, Pharaoh? He says, I'm going to chop you down. He says, you reckon you're like a big, strong crocodile or a big, strong lion? I'm going to hunt you down. This is beautiful images, if you like judgment images. Uh, not everybody does, I appreciate. But um, uh, finally, God concludes with the, um, the, the passage that we had read to us, where he pictures, basically a picture of, of, um, of Sha'ol, of the pit, of the grave, and, uh, and Pharaoh goes down uncircumcised with all the other pagans who've done their best to uh, oppose God and have fallen slain. And again, historically, this all came true. Uh, Egypt was defeated and it was restored. Um, I'm sure people here have met Egyptians. Um, But Egypt has never again become a superpower. 
And if you think about that, that is extraordinary. At, at the time Ezekiel wrote this, it was, it was unthinkable that Egypt would not be a superpower. It's like somebody saying today, uh, soon, uh, in, in, in uh, a couple of years' time, America is going to be destroyed and will never again be a superpower. We go, you've got to be joking. It can't happen. For 2,000 years, Egypt had been a superpower in the world. For 2,000 years, unthinkable. Not just a couple of hundred years like America. 2,000 years, Egypt has been a superpower in the world. And then from the defeat of Nebuchadnezzar onwards, it has never again been a superpower. God says, I will do it, and you will know that I am the Lord. God does it, and we know from world history that he is the Lord. Um, but also I think this uh, speaks to us directly as Christians, because Egypt tempted God's people into sin. And so Egypt faced the anger and judgment of God. Again, that is true of God's New Testament people as well. People who lead Christians into sin will face God's judgment and anger. Put uh, just another verse there from the New Testament for you, from Luke chapter 17, where Jesus is talking about what it'll be like for people who lead Christians into sin. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, can you see it there? Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. It's very serious to lead a Christian into sin. I hope you or I never do it. And so we need to be very careful, particularly about the way we use our Christian freedoms. As a Christian, you're free to wear basically what you want. You're free to eat and drink basically what you want. But it is very easy for us to use these sorts of things uh, to, to, to cause other Christians to stumble, to head off down to the pub, which is no problem, but to bring with us a Christian who's on the wagon or something like that. We've got to be very careful that we use our freedoms, that we act in a way which spurs other Christians onto love and good deeds, that we, that we are very careful not to be putting temptation in the way of other Christians because well, we see from Ezekiel that God is very unhappy with those who tempt his people. We see, and Jesus says the same there too, doesn't he? Okay, well, let's conclude. Um, can you see the point of uh, the passage in Ezekiel today? We're dealing with Israel's neighbours now and their response or their participation in Israel's fall. You've got uh, the six neighbours who laugh at her fall. You've got Egypt who tempts her into her fall. And the message, the message God loves his people. God loves his people and he is not happy when people tempt them into sin or where people laugh at their fall. God's judgment is coming on people like that. It is true for us as his New Testament people as well. God is angry at people who lead Christians into sin. God is angry at people who laugh when Christians fall. It's something worth keeping in mind. It's worth keeping in mind to comfort us, to know that God loves us, to know that the mockery of those around us is short-lived. But it's also worth keeping in mind to, to warn us and, uh, and to help us to persevere, to keep going with Jesus, even when we fall, even when, we, even when we're laughed at. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you do love us. We thank you that even though uh, we do sometimes sin and, and fall and, and uh, face uh, the consequences of our fall here and now, that you still love us that in the Lord Jesus Christ you've done everything that it needs for us to be accepted by you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to keep trusting in Jesus. Help us not to fall into sin. Please keep us from, from temptation. 
Help us not to give reason to other people to, to laugh and to mock, and not only at us, but at the Lord Jesus himself. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those who mock Christians, those who tempt Christians, that you help them to recognise that Christians are your people, whom you love, that they would turn in repentance and faith uh, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you help us to persevere, uh, loving and serving Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.